morning and welcome again. I want to remind you that tonight our young folks are going to be leading our service. And I know that you'll want to be here for that. It'll be a great night. And we have two speakers lined up. Wes is going to be speaking and Cameron is going to be speaking tonight. And so I want to encourage all of you to come and to be a part of that. I know it'll be a, a great encouragement to them. And it really, I guess, is inspiring to see what the future holds. And I think that we've got some great, great young people that will one day be tremendous leaders in the church, and we're very proud of them. We're thankful for all the work that they do. Appreciate so much Jared and the work that he does, Jared and Anna. And Jared has been working the past few days with both of these guys, and they'll be well prepared. They'll do a tremendous job. And so we hope you'll come and be a part of our service tonight. I want to ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, specifically we're going to be looking at verse 28 in our study today. When Jesus came to earth, he had the, cry, he had the cross and the world in his crosshairs. As a matter of fact, when you look at the life of Jesus, he was extremely focused Everything that he did was with the intent of saving the human family. And you think about all of the distractions, the discouraging words, the detractors, the devil tempting him. And there were so many forces that were trying to get him off task. And yet, in a very focused way, Jesus understood he was on planet Earth for a very specific purpose, and that was to save the human family. Sometimes, if we're not careful, we can become distracted and discouraged. And there are times in life when we get so distracted that we lose our focus. We forget about what the thrust of life ought to be. We misunderstand the work of the church. And so what we need to do sometimes is to realign our focus and to realize the brevity of life, the limitations that have been imposed upon us, and use the talents or the abilities that God has given us to maximize the potential that is before us. In Matthew chapter 20, we have an account of the mother of James and John requesting that when Jesus would ultimately come in his kingdom, that they might have the privilege, the right, of sitting one on his right hand and the other on the left. You need to understand that during the ministry of Jesus, that his disciples were jockeying for positions of power. And they wanted to know who would be the greatest among them. And so Jesus in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, said, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. What about Jesus 
And the fact that when he came to planet Earth, he had the world, the cross, in his sights. Think about those who like to hunt. They go out in the woods, and they're well-equipped, and they're looking for a deer. When they get that animal in their sights, and they have a clear, clean shot, they pull the trigger, don't they? By the same token, if you look at the life of Jesus, you see him very focused, a sense of aim and purpose behind every move and behind every word. I want to share with you some of the great attributes of Jesus and his ministry. I want to begin by, first of all, talking about his mission. What about the mission of Jesus? There are really two things, I think, that sum up the mission of Jesus. First, Jesus came to serve the human family. The disciples, the apostles, had been jockeying, as I said a moment ago, for positions of power, prominence in the kingdom. And Jesus reminded them that whoever desires to be first among you, he said, let him be your slave or your servant. And then he said, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but listen to him, but to serve. You ever thought about how Jesus, in a very profound way, served people? Jesus served people physically, didn't he? There were a lot of physical needs that Jesus met. Now granted, ultimately there was a purpose behind meeting those needs. When he began his public ministry, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. In Matthew chapter 8, you can read about Jesus as he is confronted by a leper. And this man wanted to be healed. And Jesus cleansed him of his leprosy. In that same chapter, we read about Jesus healing the servant of a centurion. And then Peter's mother-in-law had a, had a fever. And Jesus healed her. And over and over and over again throughout the gospel narratives, you read about Jesus meeting the physical needs of people. But not only did he serve people physically, but he served people socially. Jesus came to break down barriers, and he did that effectively, didn't he? You remember in Matthew chapter 9 when Jesus called a man by the name of Matthew, Matthew Levi, to become one of his disciples? And so here Jesus is in the house of Matthew, and the people of that day wanted to know why Jesus would associate with tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors in the first century were looked down upon. They were despised. And Jesus said, look, you misunderstand my mission in life. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He said, those who are well, they don't need a physician. And so you think about people that were 
disenfranchised or those who were outcasts of society, tax collectors, sinners. In John chapter 4, when Jesus met that woman at Jacob's well, a Samaritan woman, he asked her for a drink of water. And she wanted to know how it was that he being a Jew would ask a drink of water from her, a Samaritan. And John said, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And yet again, here is Jesus trying to break down those social barriers. As a matter of fact, when Jesus went to the cross, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 verse 16, that Jesus Christ reconciled both Jew and Gentile in one body unto God. The Gentiles were viewed by the Jews as dogs. They were considered by the Jewish people to be fuel for the flames of hell. When a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, his family would have a funeral service for him, considering him dead. They looked down upon them, and yet Jesus came to do what? To serve people physically, yes, socially, but then thirdly, he came to save people, didn't he? Now, there are a lot of things that Jesus did in life, and there were a lot of activities going on in his three-and-a-half-year ministry. But the focus, the aim, the purpose of Jesus summed up. Look at verse 28 again. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus Christ was the ransom price for sin. We as members of the human family were, in a sense, abducted by the devil, weren't we? You think about in the Garden of Eden when God put the first couple, Adam and Eve, in that utopian environment. And God had bestowed on them all these great blessings with one prohibition. They were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, the day you eat thereof, he said, you'll die. They ate of that forbidden tree, and death made its entrance into the world. The human family began to die physically. The human family died spiritually. But God answered the call to the sin of humanity in Genesis chapter 3 by unveiling the promised seed, chapter 3, verse 15. And over the course of time, bit by bit, piece by piece, God began unveiling his plan of redemption, culminating with the birth of Jesus, the one who would bring peace to earth. Do you remember Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9 called Jesus the Prince of Peace? When the Lord was born centuries ago, the angels of God sang praise. And they said, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill toward man. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 that Jesus, that he himself is our peace. Jesus came to bring redemption to us, to save us. Now there's something else I want you to see in our study. First we think about the mission of Jesus, but then the message of Jesus. And again, 
You think about all of the efforts that were underway during his lifetime to disrupt and circumvent his purpose, his mission. And yet the Lord never got off task. Singular in mission, singular in message, wasn't he? So what about the mission of Jesus? There's some things that Jesus shared that ought to be inspiring to us. First, it was a message of love, wasn't it? There were declarations over and over again of divine love. When Jesus talked to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus was a Jewish man, he was a ruler among the Jews, and Jesus said to Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Here is Jesus saying to Nicodemus and to people of all ages, God loves us. That's what the Bible says. And here's Jesus over and over again emphasizing this love. Jesus would say in John chapter 3, For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The world was under condemnation. When Jesus came to planet Earth, he didn't have to pronounce condemnation to the human family, but rather he came to proclaim salvation to the human family. Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So over and over again, the Bible declares divine love. You remember the words of Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 8? Talking about the divine love. I think about those declarations of love, and then what about this great demonstration of love? Talk is cheap. A lot of folks talk a good game. Jesus talked about how much he loved people, but did he show people how much he loved them? Yes, he did. Well, how did he do that? He went to the cross, didn't he? Paul said, when we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. In verse 8 he said, But God commendeth, declareth his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here's what Jesus said, Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. So here's Jesus going to the cross. And he is going to the cross because he loves us. Paul, in writing to the church at Ephesus, said, But God, who is rich in mercy, for the great love wherewith he loved us. Even when we were dead in sin, has made us alive together with Christ. And he said, By grace are you saved. So you think about this message of love. And really and truly, over the last 2,000 years, over and over and over again, this message of love it's being continually expressed to the human family. So first, it was a message of love. And then secondly, it was a message of liberty. Jesus understood that people had been abducted by the devil into a life of sin. As a matter of fact, Paul makes that abundantly clear in 2 Timothy chapter 2. When he talks about those who have been taken captive by the devil to do his will in verse 26. 
And so here are people that are enslaved. They are imprisoned by a life of sin. And yet Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 32, that you shall know the truth. And he said, the truth shall make you free. In verse 34, he said that those who commit sin are literally the bondservants. In other words, they are the slaves of sin. The devil has taken them captive. They're enslaved to this way of life. You ever seen a drug addict? Somebody who is enslaved to a, dr to a drug? They get up in the morning and all they can think about is a drug. Throughout the day, they're scurrying around. All they think about is getting high. They want a drug. They go to bed at night in a stupor because they're high. They're enslaved. Spiritually speaking, when people live in sin, that's what happens. They are, they are imprisoned. They're captive. And so Jesus said in John 8, verse 36, if the Son makes you free, he said, you're free indeed. Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Jesus came to liberate us from the depth of sin. You think about the profound impact sin has made on the human family. And people in our world today who are living beneath themselves, who are living lives that are filled with unhappiness and unsatisfaction, people that are dissatisfied and discontent, wandering about aimlessly in life. And many of those people, because of what they have done and where they have been, and because their lives have been so consumed by sin, in their minds, they are beyond repair. They are broken. And yet what Jesus is saying is, I can make you whole again as we sing. And so, when Paul wrote to Timothy, he reminded Timothy his past life as a persecutor of the church, didn't he? Identifying himself as a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent or violently arrogant man. He said, but the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Did Paul know something about the grace of God? You better believe he did, because in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, he said, where sin abounds, grace abounds, listen to him, much more. What Paul is saying is, look, God has the ability to save you. You may be upside down in a life of sin. Your life might seem like it's reeling, out of control, but God has the power to redeem you, to cleanse you, to reconcile you. No one is beyond repair. So Jesus came to liberate us from the depth of sin and from the doom of sin. You need to understand that when you choose to live in sin, it's a dead-end life. Paul said the wages of sin, listen to him, is death, Romans 6, verse 23. The gift of God, though, eternal life in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 2, 1, Paul said, And you hath he made alive who were, past tense, dead in trespasses and sins. 
All he's saying is that before you became a Christian, you were spiritually dead. But now, having obeyed the gospel, what do you have? You have life. You enjoy liberty. So here is Jesus preaching and teaching a message of love and liberty, and then thirdly, a message of life. Here's what Jesus said. I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. He's talking about the here and now, isn't he? How many, if we were to poll people in this city and they were absolutely honest, you ever ask somebody, how you doing? And they say, I'm doing great. Doing fine. And yet, internally, they're a mess. It's just programmed. You ask somebody, how you doing? They'll say, I'm doing fine. Ask somebody, how you doing? And let them say, I'm not doing well. I'm hurting. Let somebody say, no, I'm not, I'm not doing well at all. It gets your attention. Well, a lot of folks, if they were candid, extremely honest, and you were to ask them, are you satisfied with where you are in life? Are you happy? Are you content? Life working out like you thought it would? Are you where you thought you would be in life? A lot of folks would tell you, not happy, not satisfied, not content, life out of control, life's not what I thought it'd be, my kids haven't turned out the way I thought they would, my life hasn't turned out like I thought it would, my marriage hadn't turned out the way I thought it would, etc., etc., etc. Let me tell you what, Jesus can make a difference in your life. And Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. What the Lord's saying is, I can give you purpose and meaning for life. You'll never find it in, the, in a bottle of alcohol. You'll never find it in some type of chemical substance. You'll never find it in the world. You'll never find it in a relationship. But you can find it in the Lord. So, there is this idea of an abundant life but then what about eternal life? Why, why are we living a Christian life? What's it all about? Let me tell you what. We're living the Christian life because we want to go to heaven, don't we? That's what it's all about. And Paul said that we, that is, those of us who belong to the body of Christ, we live in hope of life eternal, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began. That means we have the hope of heaven, don't we? So here's Jesus, and he is preaching a message of life. Jesus said in John chapter, in John chapter 6 and about verse 27, Labor not for the food which perishes. But he said, But rather for that which endures to everlasting life. That's what we're after. Now, there's a third thing, very quickly, I want you to see. And that was, that is, the motivation of Jesus. When Jesus came to planet Earth, and you think about, here is Jesus. And he has the world and the cross in his crosshairs. They are in his sight. And he is taking dead aim. 
When Jesus Christ came to earth, there were some motivating factors. Well, what about those motivating factors? Number one, and you need to understand this, Jesus, Jesus understood the value of the soul. Do you understand? You ever paused and just taken stock of how valuable you are in the eyes of God. There is nothing on planet earth worth more than you individually. Now you think about that. There's not one thing on this earth that God deems more valuable than your soul. That's how much God values you. A couple of things here. That means, number one, Jesus has an interest in you. Sometimes when we preach, when we teach, we take things in a generic way. What we need to do is realize, look, this message is for me personally. This has to do with me, me, myself, and I. And what the Lord is saying is, you are valuable. You are more valuable than you will ever, ever, ever realize. Well, how valuable? You are so valuable that Jesus came to earth because he was interested in you. That's right. He was interested in you. Look at, look at the life of Jesus and note, if you would, the interest he placed in on people. The ministry of Jesus, was it about things? Was it about money? Was it about possessions? Was it about power and prominence and all? It was about people. The Lord was interested in people. In Matthew chapter 4, Matthew said, the very last verse of chapter 4, great multitudes followed him. Great multitudes. From Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. You think about all these people following Jesus. Why? Because they knew he was interested in them. And you need to understand he's interested in you. Not only is he interested in you, but here's what you need to understand as well. He invested in you. He invested in you. He thought enough of you to go to the cross. That's an investment. Now, there are a lot of folks that don't appreciate the investment. What did it cost Jesus to save you from sin? It cost him his life. Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. You were lost. I was lost. We are lost. But Jesus came to make a difference. Now, what about those of us who belong to the body of Christ today? Sometimes we lose sight of what we're supposed to be about. And yet we, like Jesus, we've got to be focused. We've got to have purpose and aim in life. We've got to understand we need to be interested in people. And we have to invest in people. Why? Because there is an intrinsic worth associated with the souls of people. The Lord Jesus Christ 
has invested deeply in you. He has a vested interest in you. And so, when you go to bed tonight, you ought to thank God. You ought to thank the Lord that he loved you enough to die for you. Now, let me ask this question. Let's just say hypothetically that you and you alone were the only person to be alive here on planet Earth. Only person. Would Jesus have gone to the cross for you? You know what the answer is? Yes, he would have. Yes, he would have. So what does that say about you and your worth? It says you're extremely valuable. So he made an investment. I think about the value of the soul. Jesus understood the value of the soul, and sometimes we don't understand it. The Lord asked the question, What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? All he's saying is, look, if you think the world and all the things, the trappings of the world are more valuable than your soul, you have missed it all. And a lot of folks think that because that's what they're thinking about. They're trying to get more and more and more, and they forget about this internal spirit that will live forever. They forget about how valuable they are in the eyes of God. They forget about the Lord's interest in them. They forget about the Lord's investment in them. So he understood the value of the soul. But secondly, he also understood the victory of the soul. What is it? What is it that prompted Jesus to go to the cross? Sin, yes. To save us, yes. But ultimately, what the Lord desires out of all of us is that one day we will be victorious. That we will have so run the Christian race so that when we get home, he can meet us, he can greet us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. I was talking to somebody just a moment ago about going away to college. I remember when I went away to college, And when I was at school, I loved it. I had a great time. Come home on Friday night, couldn't wait to get home. Flying down the interstate, trying to get home. Get home, then Sunday afternoon, have to go back, or Sunday night, have to go back to school. Homesick all the way. Homesick. Get back to Nashville, guess what? Happy again. Back around my friends, enjoying it again. But you know, when you've been away and you come home, especially if you've been away for an extended period of time, when you walk through those doors, what do you have? You have greetings. Your mother, your father, man, wrap those big arms around you and tell you how glad they are to see you because they're happy. You're home. One day the Lord's going to wrap his arms around us and say, well done. You're home. Don't you want to go to heaven? I don't know why anybody would not want to go to heaven. So, you look at the life of Jesus and you think about when he came to earth. He came because of us. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want to give you a golden invitation. I want you to understand this invitation is open to all. Jesus said, come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden. He said, I'll give you rest. You can have that rest today.
Well, what do you need to do? Believe Jesus to be the Son of God, John 8, 24. Repent of your sins, Luke 13, 3. Confess his name before others. Be buried with him in baptism, rising to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 3, and 4. And then be faithful. And you know what? One day, one day, we'll be home with him in a place called heaven. If you're here today, maybe your life's not what it ought to be. Maybe you're off track and you want to come home. Let me tell you what, the door's wide open. You can come home today and God will do this. He will save you. John said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Won't you come as we stand and sing?